This is Redemption Radio with Pastor Cody King of Redemption Calvary in Commerce City, Colorado. Here's a preview from Pastor Cody of today's message. Notice verse 10. It says this, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. You see, this phrase that Jesus' death was while we were His enemies. While we were His enemies. Biblically speaking, there's no such thing as good, unsaved people. There's no such thing. Pastor Cody reminds us today about what the Bible makes clear regarding the human condition. We are all sinful. Without divine intervention, none of us are good. In fact, we all deserve God's wrath. But Jesus willingly took on the wrath of God for us, that we may be saved from God's judgment if we place our faith in Him. And as Pastor Cody points out, Jesus died for us while we were still enemies of God, openly rebelling against Him. But now that we are redeemed to Him, we can rest in His goodness to us. Now, turn in your Bible to the book of Romans chapter 5 and join Pastor Cody for today's edition of Redemption Radio. Abraham goes to the mountain with Isaac, and and I don't know what kind of imagery you have in your head of this, but typically from some of the pictures you've seen, maybe you think of, you know, Abraham as like a 40-year-old guy, and then he's got this little kid, he's about 10 in Isaac, and he's going to sacrifice him, and you're like, that's a weird idea. Well, that's not the way that it was going down. You see, Abraham was about 130 years old, and his son was about 30 years old. So Isaac's a young man at this point. He's fully grown. He's fully capable. In fact, very easy, it would be very easy for Isaac to overpower Abraham in that moment. And so when this this sacrifice of, of Isaac, it displays the faith equally of Abraham and of Isaac. It displays their faith equally. Now take that idea and let's look at this with with the idea of love. Read again verse 8 with me where it says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice the beginning and the end. God's love is demonstrated through the death of Jesus. The Father's love is demonstrated through the death of Jesus. I mean, this would make more sense to me in my mind to say that Jesus' love is demonstrated for us, that he died for us. But the Father's love is what's being demonstrated through the death of the Son. It's, it's equally the same. The love of the Father and the love of the Son are so to being brought to bear in the moment of the cross. Secondly, not only is God's love contrasted, but God's love is expanded in verse, verses 9 and 10. Notice it says there in verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Much more than it's essentially saying that since Jesus' blood is powerful enough to justify your soul, to take you from guilty to just as amazing and perfect as Jesus, since his blood is so powerful to do that, then it logically follows that it's powerful enough to do lesser things as well. 
This is not the concept of starting with something smaller and then, then consensually growing to bigger and bigger things. This is saying it's so big and so massive. So then when we bring it in, we took it, take a look at lesser things. It logically follows that it makes sense that that's possible as well. You see the wrath of God, the, the word wrath there, it's essentially God's rightly felt and executed hatred against our sinfulness. You see, we're guilty and therefore we deserve the wrath of God. That's all we deserve. When you deal with God on the basis of what you deserve, all you deserve is his wrath. That's all you deserve. You deserve nothing more than that. And yet he wants to display his love to you. Romans 1.18, if you remember when we began in Romans, I think it was our second study, we looked at this verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, here's the reality. We deserve God's wrath, but Jesus' blood pays the penalty for us. It takes us from condemned in guiltiness to commended in holiness. That's what the blood of Jesus does. And if it's that powerful, if it's that amazing, if, if we can do that by grace through faith, it's a gift of God. It's something that he gives to us in his grace and we receive it by faith. And because he took the unreserved, unrestricted wrath of God for you, he can also give you the unrestricted, unreserved love of God to you. That's, that's the amazing thing of the grace of Jesus and the gift of justification. But as we're saved from wrath, it goes further from the then and there. We, we tend to think about the wrath of God as being something out there, as eternal judgment. And that, that's a right and appropriate way to view the wrath of God. The, the wrath of God being poured out as, as the idea of, of eternity in hell. That's a, that's a good application of that thought. But it, this idea goes further than just way out there of eternity. It has implications for here and now as well. You see, as a Christian, you are never being punished by God. Never. You're never experiencing God's wrath upon your life. Think about it like this, if you would. I mean, how much wrath are you supposed to endure? How much of God's wrath do you need to, to take on? How much of, of God's punishment do you need to have for your sinfulness, for the failures and frailty of your humanity? How much of that do you need to take on? If, even if you take 0.01% of it, then that is to say that the death of Jesus, his blood, it wasn't quite enough. If Jesus's blood wasn't quite enough, then there's more punishment for you to take. But the truth is, Jesus' blood is enough. And that means that there is never a time in your life as a Christian where you are ever experiencing the punishment of God. Maybe, maybe we experience the chastening or discipline of God as Christians, but that's because God views us as father, as dad, as his kids. And as a good dad, he disciplines his kids. This is what it says in Hebrews 12, 11. It says this, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be the peaceable harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. 
You see, God isn't punishing you. He might be disciplining you or chastening you through different things, through different hard experiences or painful experiences that you go through. But it's his training of righteousness into you. Not just the declaration that you are righteous, not just him saying you're declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus, but actually practically working out righteousness within you. This is what God is doing through this chastening that he brings into your life. Also in this, when we read the book of Revelation, that can only rightly be described as the wrath of God. The, the book of Revelation and all of the chaos and all of the, the insanity that ensues through the book of Revelation, all of the, the death and destruction, it is all the wrath of God being poured out upon humanity for the rejection of Jesus. But in this, the idea of being saved from wrath is also a promise for Christians to not endure the great tribulation of Revelation. This, is, this isn't just something that's you know, displayed here in verse 9, that we, are, we should be saved from wrath. But this is also something that is throughout the entirety of Scripture. Here are two different examples of it. In Genesis, we have the example of Enoch. We're told that Enoch walked, Enoch walked with God and then was no more. He was translated, he was, he was raptured up into the presence of God. And this happened right before the flood that judged the whole earth. Enoch is a type of the church to be taken out of the world before the wrath of God is poured out upon the world. This is one example of that. Also, Lot is another example in the book of Genesis later on as Lot is in the city of Sodom and he's there and, and Abraham is visited by the Lord and a couple of angels. And Abraham has this conversation with God and basically says, God, hey, you're not going to judge the righteous with the wicked, are you? That, that's just not inside your character. What if there's 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom? Would you judge the city? And God says, no, I won't judge the city for the sake of 50. And then Abraham whittles God down and just brings him down from 50 to 45 to 30 to 20, all the way down to 10, down to 10 people. And God says, if there's 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I won't judge it. And so God sends the angels and you know what they find? There was only one guy, just Lot. He's the only righteous guy in the entire town. And so he is taken out of the town and the angels actually say, I can't bring the judgment of God upon this place until you're safe. That's what they say. There's this picture of God taking his people out before the judgment comes. Notice verse 10. It says this, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see this phrase that Jesus's death was while we were his enemies, while we were his enemies. Biblically speaking, there's no such thing as good unsaved people. There, there's no such thing. People who are outside of Christ, people who are not saved by the grace of God, there are no such thing as good unsaved people. We are all, when we're not in Christ, when we're not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, we're all God's enemies. That's the truth. That's the reality. There's no fence to ride. There's no middle ground. Nobody gets to be Switzerland in the deal and say, I'm not taking sides. That's just not the way that it works. In Matthew 12, 30, it says it like this. Jesus speaking of it, he says, anyone who isn't with me opposes me and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Jesus draws the line in the sand and he says, either you're for me 
or you're against me. There's no middle ground. There's no fence. There's, there's no staying neutral in all of this. You are either for me or you're against me. And Jesus' death for you was while you were against him. While you were his enemy. Jesus died for you on your worst day, not your best day. Jesus died for you in that, in that sinful place that you hope nobody ever knows about. The, the thing that you've done that's the worst that has ever been done in your life. And that if it was to be displayed on a movie screen in your neighborhood, you would be so embarrassed and you'd feel so terrible that people knew about that thing. Well, here's the thing. Jesus knows about it and he died for it. Not only does he know, but he sacrificed himself to pay for it so that he could take you from his enemy to be his friend from enemy to beloved. That's the power of God's love. God's love is powerful enough to justify, then it's powerful enough to cover the lesser, lesser issues of wrath. And it also covers the even lesser issue of keeping you saved. That's what verse 10 is talking about here. That, that much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is speaking of the keeping power of God. That God is able to not only save you that one time, but to keep you saved for your life. Here's how Skip Heitzig says it. If the dying Savior reconciled us to God, then surely a living Savior will keep us reconciled to God. The life of Jesus is what gives you the hope of knowing that you are saved and you will remain that way. You see, being saved by his life is to say that the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that he has the power to give you the eternal life that he promised you. That it's not just this pipe dream. It's not just this, you know, fairy tale, but that it's real. It's absolutely true. The fact that Jesus conquered death proves that he can do it. And if I'm going to trust anybody with eternity, I'm going to trust the guy who was able to conquer death. The guy who died and came back from the grave. He's the only one who's been able to, to do that. And so I'm going to trust him with that kind of a thing. You see, you did nothing to save yourself. And so you don't do anything to keep yourself saved. It's the work of God. It's, it's the, the same way you get into salvation is the same way you stay in salvation. It's by grace through faith. We trust in the Lord for it. Or, okay, so thirdly and finally, verse 11, God's love extended. Verse 11 says this, and not only that, it's like that, but wait, there's more. But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You see, we have the tendency as people to disconnect spiritual things from our daily lives. We sort of compartmentalize our lives. I have this kind of thing that I do in this situation when I'm at work. I have this kind of a life. When I'm at church, I have this kind of a life. When I'm, you know, playing basketball or softball, I have this kind of a life. We, we tend to compartmentalize our lives when, with all the different kinds of situations that we find ourselves in. And what Jesus is looking to do is to say, I want to be Lord over all of this. I want to come in and, and take up residence over all of these things, that there is a consistency within your heart and life through every situation and scenario that you find yourself in, that Jesus wants control over it all. You see, if God provides salvation for his enemies, think of the kind of joy he provides for his friends. Isn't that what it talks about there in verse 11? Not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That if God will save his enemies, if Jesus will sacrifice himself for his enemies, what kind of joy do you think he gives to his friends? 
This is the amazing power of God on display. You see, a saved soul is revealed in a joyful life. That's the way that we can see a saved soul. There should be joy emanating from the life of the Christian. I remember, you know, this starts the day that you get saved. I remember the day that I got saved. I was 17 years old. I was in an arena and the the preacher was preaching. And as he was talking about certain things, he was describing this person who had this junk in his life. It was like these dead branches, massive dead branches, just dragging behind this person. And as the preacher was describing that, God was using his words to speak right into my heart and say, this is you. Your life is so filled with your things and your pursuits and you think it's giving you life, but literally it's just dragging behind you and it's killing you. And God said, if you'll trust me, I'll cut all that deadness off your life. I'll remove it all from you and I'll give you a new life. And when I decided to trust the Lord, to to submit my life to the Lordship of Jesus, realizing that his death, his blood wasn't just something back in the past or some religious idea, but it was for me. Then that moment I received salvation. And you know what happened? My life was immediately, I could feel it. It was lighter. There was weight lifted. There was something that changed. I didn't, I didn't physically have anything change necessarily, but something changed. The weight was lifted and joy flooded my heart. And since that day, I've experienced the joy of the Lord in my life every day since. And, and it's not something that's this fleeting emotion of I'm happy and I'm sad and all these kinds of things, but the joy of the Lord has carried me through even some dark days in my life, some difficult seasons, some difficult times, some pain and some suffering since the day of my salvation. And yet the joy of the Lord has been there through it all because God provides this joy. You see, all, pl- all people in all places for all of time are longing for joy. People need it. We, we need joy. I've never met somebody who, is, who would say, no, nah, you know what? I really just, I don't want to be happy. I don't want to have a happy life. I don't want good things to happen in my life. That's what we do. We need. We intrinsically, we instinctively seek out happiness. We pursue it. And we're deceived though to look for it in the wrong places, to try to achieve it the wrong way. Here's how Thomas Aquinas said it. No man can live without joy. That is why one who is deprived of spiritual joy goes over to carnal pleasures. You see, if we're deceived to not seek out joy in the Lord, to seek out this this happiness, this pleasure in the things of the Lord, then we'll chase it down in other things. We'll chase it down in sinful activities. You see, when we either don't understand the spiritual joy that's available to us, or we don't believe that it's actually going to fulfill us, then what we do is we fill this void of human need with sinful pursuits. We just chase down whatever sinful pleasure we think is going to satisfy us. And yet there in verse 10, we also see this, that not only that, but we receive the joy of the Lord through whom we also now received the reconciliation. The reconciliation. We've received the reconciliation. It's, it's, this is the idea that the love of God produces the kind of joy that we need. It's a spiritual reality with both eternal and immediate consequences. If you have no joy in your life, there, there's no joy exuding from you, then, then I'd have to ask you to think about that. There are a couple of possible reasons why. Number one, 
the first and most likely reason why there's no joy coming out of your life is that you're not a Christian. Maybe you're religious. Maybe you go through the religious motions. Maybe you try to do all the right religious things. You try to live a good life, but you're not saved. You haven't submitted yourself to the Lordship of Jesus. You haven't recognized his death on your behalf. And so you're just trying to muscle your way through it. And that's not joyful. That's work. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus provides joy in this submission to him. And so if you're not experiencing joy, then most likely you you may not even be a Christian. Or maybe if you are, maybe you have submitted yourself to the Lordship of Jesus and you have committed yourself to him. But maybe the reason you're not experiencing joy as a Christian is because you're trying to ride the fence. You've got one foot in the church, you've got one foot in the world, and you're trying to stand in the middle. And what you're experiencing is this desert, deserted place of, of a no man's land where, where you're not supposed to live. Where, where you have too much of the Lord in you to be satisfied in the world, and you've got too much of the world in you to be satisfied in the Lord, and so your heart is torn and ripped, and you're just living a joyless existence. If you're living that way, if you're doing that, now's the time to repent. Now's the time to abandon the world and go wholehearted for Jesus. And he'll fill your heart and your life with joy inexpressible. Alan Redpath said it like this. It's possible for a Christian to have a saved soul and a wasted life. I don't don't want that. I don't want to be saved and have the opportunity for eternity sometime out in the future and not be able to experience a joy-filled, purpose-filled, meaning-filled life for today. If you want a a purpose-filled life, if you want to have meaning in life, it comes from Jesus and the joy that he provides, the satisfaction that only he can bring. The greatest joy available to you is knowing that your life is pleasing to God. That's the greatest joy you could ever experience. It's what fuels the meaning for your life and for your soul. It's what your soul longs for. You see, sin tries to promise you this. It says, if you just do this, then you're going to experience that this happiness, this joy that you're longing for. Here, just do this thing. Just dive into this stuff. And you know what it does? It's hollow. It's shallow. It actually doesn't, doesn't have what you're hoping to get from it. And, and the thing that you're hoping to get, it actually steals from you. The joy and the happiness you're, you're hoping to get is stolen from you. And all you're left with is bitterness and brokenness. A pay raise can't give you the joy that you need. That new job can't give you the joy that you need. A promotion can't give you the the joy that you need. uh, More power, a boyfriend or a girlfriend is not going to give you the joy that you need. Getting married isn't going to give you the joy that you need. Having kids, it's not going to give you the joy that you need. Buying that house or that car or boat or toy hauler, that new purchase, having that vacation, that experience, it's not going to give you the joy that you need. Now, none of those things are, are bad. They might give you temporary pleasure. They might be something that you can, that, that you can derive some sort of happiness from, from for a season, but only Jesus can give eternal purpose and eternal joy. And when all of those other things are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, then they can have their right place. They don't become my God. They become a thing I use to serve my God, to honor and to glorify him. You see, when your hopes and your dreams are requests that are submitted to Jesus, instead of demands that you're expecting from him, then you're in the right spot. Then you're in the right place and you yield control to him. And that is where you find joy inexpressible. That's where you find the joy that the love of God brings 
into your heart and life. You see, God loves you more deeply and intimately than you could ever imagine. More than words could ever express. He does more than just feel it and he does more than just say it. He demonstrates it. And if you've ever doubted the love of God, if you've ever wondered, does God love me? Look no further than the cross of Jesus. It's the greatest display of love that could ever be demonstrated. That Jesus died, not just in general, but for you. That you were on his mind as he was bleeding and suffering and dying. He was doing it for you, with you in mind. He's already done more than enough to prove his crazy love for you. There's no greater display of love. The question is, will you trust in the love of Jesus? I hope that you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your word today. We thank you that we are able to expand on and explain and look upon your precious, amazing, gracious love. We pray that you would help us to understand it and it would bear upon our hearts and minds and you would give us drive and purpose and meaning because of your great love and that you would be glorified. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of Redemption Radio as we study the book of Romans with Pastor Cody. Within this book, the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans about personal things such as greeting people he knows, but also touches on some deep theological concepts that can throw people at times. Romans is a foundational book when it comes to what you believe as a Christian. What you can't deny as you read through it is that there's a clear message of God's salvation. We as human beings are separated from God because of sin. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, He redeems all of that and brings us into relationship with Him. Do you have such a relationship with God? We certainly hope so. If you're uncertain what that means, don't hesitate to get in touch to clear up some of the things you may not understand about salvation. You can reach us by going to redemptioncalvary.org. Under the Connect tab, you'll find what we believe the Bible says about salvation. If you'd like to hear someone's voice over the phone, we can do that too. Here's our number, 720 420- 466-5358. Once again, that's 720-466-5358. One more way to get in touch with us is over email. Our email address is info at redemptioncalvary.org. Thanks for listening, and make sure to subscribe to our podcast of Redemption Radio.